Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, so like I said before, we are in the middle of a message series called Battle of the Bands. We're talking about popular songs that have some deep meaning, and that could be personally meaningful or kind of a uh, universally shared meaning or some kind of combination of both. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Bert talked about one of his favorite songs, the logical song, and how it helped him to look past the expectations of others and focus on who God called him to be. And then last week, Joe Arico gave a great message about the song Stupid Deep by John Bellion and how we chase things besides God's love in order to fill the hole in our hearts. The awkward thing about doing a message series like this is the, the fear that you'll judge our taste in music. <laughs> so it requires a little bit of vulnerability. It's a little scary to do this. Have you ever had a song that you loved and you wanted to share with a friend of yours, and finally you got the opportunity to play the song for them, and you're like, you're, you're, you can't wait to see the look on your face, and when you play it for them, they're not nearly as into it as you wanted them to be. And oh boy, there's another two and a half minutes left of this, pretending like they're tolerating you, and oh boy, it's, 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 it, it makes you feel like, you know, like you're rejected, like, you know, do, are we still friends after this? So uh, that's what, it, what it's like to kind of talk about stuff like this, but here's a little bit about where I'm coming from. I'm what's known as a geriatric millennial. <laughs> it's an actual term that's used in, you know, in the, in the blogosphere, in the internet worlds and whatever. But I'm part of that first wave of millennials who were born in the early 80s, but really came of age in the 90s. I don't really know where that term geriatric comes from, but I'm pretty sure it's because of all millennials, we're the most likely to be the, the cranky elderly people who talk about how hard things used to be. You know, like back in my day, we used to walk to school in the snow barefoot both ways. But for us, it's more like back in my day, if you wanted to own a song, you had to buy the whole CD. And we had to wait until the weekend and beg our parents to drive us to the whiz. <laughs> yes, sir. And the CD cost $22.99. In today's money adjusted for inflation, that's $8,000. That's only a slight exaggeration, but the early 90s were a pretty rad time to grow up, to, to both come of age and love music. Music suddenly got really honest and angry. You had grunge and punk and alternative becoming a lot more mainstream. And hip-hop was gaining serious steam and controversy for lyrics that while they depicted real life, they also uh, you know, had a lot of profanity and talking about violence and stuff like that. But this was music that prompted us to ask questions about the world that we weren't getting answers about from our parents or from school. The song I'll be talking about today goes like this. Cash rules everything around me. Cream get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> For the uninformed, we are going to be talking today about Cream Cash Rules Everything Around Me by Wu-Tang Clan. 
welcome to True North. This is how we roll sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for going on this weird little journey with me. Wu-Tang Clan is a hip-hop group from Staten Island, which formed in 1992. Its nine original members included the RZA, the Jizza, ODB, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, Inspector Deck, You God, and Master Killer. Reciting all the names of the Wu-Tangs is like reciting the names of the Seven Dwarves. Like, he's like, happy, dopey, sleepy. It's like, Rizza, Jizza, ODB, It's When they released their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, it received widespread critical acclaim immediately. And still to this day, it's consistently rated as one of the most influential hip-hop albums of all time. And their calling card was an affinity for old kung fu movies and a lo-fi production style that helped define the East Coast hip-hop sound. We're gonna take a quick listen to that main hook. If, feel, if you know the words, feel free to sing along. Uh, but <laughs> let's take a listen. <laughs> Never thought you'd see that in church, did you? <laughs> so now, now I'm gonna address the massive elephant in the room. Yes, this song by Wu-Tang Clan, released in 1994, contains profanity, bad words, as well as graphic depictions of violence, drug use, drug dealing, and extreme poverty. It's basically an episode of The Wire, so, listener discretion, if you choose to find this song on your own time, we are not going to get too deep into the full lyrics this morning, but we are going to focus on that hook. Cash rules everything around me. This is a phrase that in the almost 30 years since this song came out has moved up the rankings of just timeless, accurate, wise phrases like, Ben Franklin is famous for saying the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. Wu-Tang Clan is right underneath there. You got Ben Franklin and Wu-Tang, purveyors of truth. Who would have thunk it? I was 12 years old when I heard this song for the first time. I believe it was on the radio on Hot 97 that I was listening to it. Was I allowed to listen to music like this? No, not at all. But I did anyway, as 12-year-olds with a rebellious streak tend to do. Maybe if my parents knew that one day I'd be using it in a sermon illustration in church, they would have thought differently. But here we are. <laughs> At 12 years old, I heard it, and I stopped, and I said, Whoa, cash rules everything around me? Cream, get the money? Dollar, dollar, bill, y'all? This was truth for me as a 12-year-old. The brain of a 12-year-old boy is going through some stuff. If you've ever been a 12-year-old boy, or if you've raised a 12-year-old boy, you know this. It's chaos. At this stage, I'm not only trying to figure out who I am and who my friends are and where I fit in, but also now all of a sudden I don't know where I got this funny feeling around girls in my class. And now why do I, want, I need, want to get them to notice me. How do I get them to notice me? Why do I want them to notice me? Nothing is making sense anymore. 
I didn't know it much at the time, but I am and always have been a very thinky person. I spend a lot of time in my head trying to figure things out and analyze. Such was the case back then, too. So my adolescent years were abnormally thinky. And I had already figured out by this point that there was some correlation between how cool my clothing and my sneakers and my stuff was and where I existed on the social totem pole. There were haves and there were have-nots. I was one of the have-nots. Now, I'm not going to grow, I'm not going to weave a tapestry of growing up in poverty, because that's simply not true. My upbringing on, in suburban Long Island was nothing compared to you know, the trials of, of a group like Wu-Tang went through growing up in a housing project in Staten Island. It doesn't even compare. But I would say that I was the victim of bad timing. My adolescent years just happened to coincide with a very financially challenging season for my family, and there just wasn't much money. We were regulars at the church food pantry for a spell. Um, more often than not, my sneakers were from Payless instead of Foot Locker. Denim jeans were too expensive, so I was wearing a lot of JCPenney sweatpants. Not really the style you want to be noticed for when you're 12. In 1994, cash did rule everything around me. This song was putting into words everything that I was feeling socially at that impressionable age. Fast forward to now, 2022. It would appear that cash still does rule everything around us, maybe even more so than ever. Since 2003, consumer debt in the United States has doubled from $8 trillion to $16 trillion. That's trillion with a T. That's a 100% growth despite only 17% population growth in that time. The market cap of the S&P 500 has grown 300% in that time. The net worth of billionaires in 2003 was 3.4% of GDP. Nowadays, that number is well above 10% of GDP. Cool economics TED Talk, Daniel. What does that really mean for us? It means that in 2022, there's more money than ever, but regular people's share of it is less than ever. And meanwhile, essentials like healthcare and food and housing and fuel are more expensive than they've ever been. Everyday people like you and me are fighting really hard for scraps. The temptation is very strong to devote our lives to the pursuit of getting our hands on as many of those scraps as we possibly can by whatever means necessary. Wu-Tang Clan elaborates throughout the song, Cream, that their whatever means necessary is somewhere on the spectrum between unethical and criminal. I hope that as a church community, we are not resorting to crime in the pursuit of money, but from cryptocurrency to bored apes to NFTs to GameStop stonks to whatever the next new investment thing is to good old lottery tickets, it's clear we're always looking to get a financial leg up somehow. And if it's not that, we're just working way too much, way too long. We're putting stress on our marriages, on our friendships. We're putting stress on our health. If we're not careful, 
this desire for financial stability can and will have power over us. In the Gospels, Jesus encounters two people who made their lives all about getting their hands on that money. Two rich people. But they each respond to Jesus very differently. We're going to read from the book of Matthew, chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up from verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. I love the passages in the Gospels where Jesus clearly knows what somebody is going to say before they say it. Right away, Jesus knows that this dude's heart isn't in the right place, and he's looking for ways to make himself look good. Continuing from uh, verse 18. Which ones, the man asked, and Jesus replied, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I have obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Do you ever argue with, their, with your kids about them getting, about getting them to do like a household chore and you want to lay down the law and you're like, don't make me say it again! Don't make me say it twice! Jesus says this twice so you know that he means business. And now that we know how important Jesus felt it was for us to know this, let's make sure that we understand clearly what it is he's actually saying. On the surface, we read camel and eye of a needle. Well, okay, a camel is this big, an eye of a needle is, is that big. That sounds more like it's impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Are you saying that if I ever get rich, I have no shot? Possibly, but there's another theory. Thomas Aquinas was an immensely influential theologian and biblical historian who lived in the 13th century. In his mega-commentary, the Catena Aurea, which I think is Latin for really long book, he provides the following commentary based on his research of the writings of early church leaders. It is explained otherwise that at Jerusalem there was a certain gate called the Needle's Eye, through which a camel could not pass but on its bended knees and after its burden had been taken off. In other words, in order for a camel to pass through this gate, it would need to bow. If you're a person of wealth who has the financial means to make the world bend to your whims, and if you're accustomed to having things your way, the last thing on your mind is humbling yourself to bow before anybody. That's where the difficulty really comes from. 
this particular person of wealth that Jesus encountered showed his hand and indicated that he was incapable of surrendering his whole life to God, including his resources. Earlier in in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Jesus flat out says they're incompatible. Let's look at someone else and so we can, who was able to demonstrate that such a thing was not impossible. We're looking at the book of Luke chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up from verse 27. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus, to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? Some quick context. Back then, tax collectors weren't merely IRS employees like they are today. A tax collector was an officiant of the Roman government who assisted the Roman government in collecting taxes in their conquered territories. Jerusalem was a conquered territory of Rome. Rome was occupying Jerusalem. This was a position you had to want. You had to seek it out. You had to actively pursue it. With such a position came perks. Perks like the ability to upcharge whatever additional fees you wanted on top of the tax payments owed. Levi was a tax collector, but also a Jewish person in Jerusalem. So that was a bad mix for for other people. Levi was so about the money that he was willing to exploit and rob his own people and his community for the benefit of himself and their oppressors to make things even worse. Levi was the local dirtbag. If the first rich man was a Jeff Bezos type, Levi was more like his days Martin Shkreli, who was known for buying up uh, patents of what was once very inexpensive life-saving medicine and then jacking the price up by hundreds of dollars. Exploitation. Levi was exploiting his own people. And he was hated by his neighbors. He was ostracized, excluded. They called him scum. His reputation was dirt, less than dirt. And yet, Jesus sees through all of that into Levi's heart and says, follow me and be my disciple. What does Levi do in response? He walks away from all of it. Levi, by his actions, says, Jesus, money has been a terrible, terrible master. All being ruled by it has done is alienate me from my family and my community. Jesus, I don't want it anymore. You can have it. And to show that he he meant what he said, Levi went and threw a lavish party for Jesus. He just blew all of his money on a party for Jesus after that. 
Levi later became known as Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Sounds like he made the right decision. He made the right trade. When Jesus makes a move in your life, do you want to be able to say, Jesus, I'll follow you? I know I do. It's a really nice story, Daniel, but you, you don't understand. I'm not out here trying to get rich. I'm just trying to get by. I'm so afraid of not having enough. What if I can't retire? What if I can't put my kids through college? What if something happens and I can no longer afford my mortgage payment? Have you ever had a financial what if like that? I definitely have. As humans, we suffer from this delusion that money equals freedom. But the reality is, if money is your master, no amount of it will ever be enough. That fear of not having enough is bondage. It's holding us back from becoming who God is really calling us to be. God wants us to live in his abundance and trust in his provisions. Cream, cash rules everything around me, can be true for you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Cash doesn't have to be the rule. Okay, then, what is it then? It can instead be a tool. Once you, start to be, once you begin to look at money as a tool that's available to us in order to make the world around us better, it's a game changer. It changes your perspective on everything. Let's imagine that you stockpiled a tool, hammers. Let's say you stockpiled a bunch of hammers. And over the years, you keep kept on collecting hammers. And now you keep on collecting hammers, and now you just got a garage full of hammers just sitting there. That would be silly, right? But that's exactly how we deal with money. What if instead you put those hammers in the hands of other people and had them put it to good use? Then they can now build something too. And then the more people you give hammers to, the bigger you can build. You can bring people together and you can do, accomplish awesome things that would have been impossible for you to do on your own. Let's phrase it a different way. If you were God, would you give you more money? The possibilities and opportunities that rise up when the posture of your heart is generosity are so much more life-giving than the pursuit of the tool itself. Don't clench the dollar bill so tightly in your fist that you miss out on God's possibilities. Hold it loosely. Be enthusiastic to put it to good use. Be happy to let it go. Okay, Daniel, how do I do that? If you spend enough time in church, you hear this word every now and then called tithe or tithing. And in simplest terms, it means giving 10% of your income to God. And there's a bunch of ways to talk about it, a bunch of ways to spin it from it being an obedience thing to a responsibility to merely a suggestion, etc. 
Admittedly, it's also been misused throughout history to an unfortunate degree to wield authority over people. Let's be honest about that. I think the most helpful way to look at tithing is as an exercise. It's a low-stakes practice of submission to God. It's an easy step we can do regularly, which actually helps lessen over time the amount of control that money has over us. If we're able to joyfully submit 10%, our trust in God grows. And then it's only a matter of time before we're able to look at our whole 100% through the fresh eyes of wanting to do good. That, my friends, is freedom. But there's baby steps you could do right now that have nothing to do with church, giving a dime to this church, any church at all, but can help you accomplish the same function in your life. You can tip your serving staff generously at a restaurant, whether the service was good or not. You can help a neighbor in need by buying their groceries and seek nothing in return. You can buy diapers and baby supplies for single moms. You can clothe, feed, and house people. You can be as creative and as innovative in your generosity as you want to be. In fact, that's the challenge. There are no rules when it comes to generosity. When we allow cash to rule everything around us, the sky might be the limit, but when we're ruled by generosity, there are no limits. And it's my hope together that as a community, you and I will continue to pursue that freedom together. We have a real opportunity right now. We have the ability and the opportunity to be difference makers in the world, real difference makers for good and for God. So I say, let's go get it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for there being truth in unexpected places, Father. We know that everything can be redeemed by you, Father, and we're so grateful that there's uh, wisdom in places we wouldn't expect to find it. We pray that you would motivate us and challenge us, Father, to have hearts of generosity because we want to be a part of the amazing things that you're doing. You're going to surprise us, Father. You're going to knock our socks off with the amazing things that you're able to do. We want to be part of it with you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to let go and to trust in your provisions so that we can really make a positive and good impact in the world around us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word True North to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.